I have some news for you that might confuse you at first and might even shock you. It is this. The book of 1 Peter that we have been studying for the past several months may not have actually been written by Peter. Now before you think about gathering up stones to stone me, hear me out. The book of 1 Peter may not have been written by Peter, but it was authored by Peter. And that's not just double talk, as we'll see in a moment. Let's turn together to 1 Peter chapter 5, and this confusing introduction will hopefully become clear as we work our way through the message this morning. 1 Peter chapter 5, please follow along as I read verses 10 through 14, the final verses of this powerful letter. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. As you can see, these are the final words in this letter known as 1 Peter. Some would call these verses Peter's benediction. However, as I said a moment ago, it is very likely that Peter didn't actually write these words. Now, understand what I'm saying. They were his words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, but they were probably dictated to Silvanus. You see, it was common practice in the first century for people to dictate their letters, and it seems the apostles were no different. It seems that their practice was to dictate their letters to an amanuensis or a stenographer, whichever term you prefer, and then they would sign off at the end to validate the content of the letter. Let me show you a couple of examples of this. Back up with me before we look at this text. Back up with me to Romans chapter 16. After the four Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, then Romans chapter 16... And here we see a very clear example of this from Paul's letter to the church at Rome. Romans chapter 16, verse 21. <clears throat> Timothy, my fellow worker, and Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, my countrymen, greet you. I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. Now who's that? What, what, what is this? I thought Paul wrote the book of Romans. Well, Tertius was the guy who wrote down what Paul dictated to him. Paul was the author of the book of Romans, which was inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, but Tertius recorded what Paul wanted written. Look at the next letter, 1 Corinthians. Very next letter, last chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Paul gives us a little hint concerning his practice. In this verse, 1 Corinthians 16, 21, he says, The salutation with my own hand, Paul's. 
Paul probably didn't write any of his letters manually, but he was the author of them. They were his thoughts, his content, his words directed by the Holy Spirit of God, but they weren't written by his own hand in his own handwriting. The only exception to that may be the book of Galatians. Look with me at Galatians chapter 6 as we keep working our way to the right toward 1 Peter. Past 2 Corinthians is Galatians. Galatians chapter 6, verse 11. Paul makes an interesting statement here related to this issue of authorship and who wrote and who uh, recorded and so forth. Galatians 6, 11, he says, See my translation with what large letters... I have written to you with my own hand. Some translations say, see what a large letter I have written to you with my own hand. And either way, it comes out the same. That may mean that Paul wrote this entire letter himself rather than using an amanuensis, which was his normal practice. When Paul received news that the Galatians were turning to the law, rather than continuing to develop a relationship with the Lord Jesus through the Spirit, Paul was deeply troubled. He was stirred up. So he didn't take the time, evidently, he didn't take the time to find someone to whom he could dictate this letter. So he grabbed his pen to write this entire letter himself instead of finding someone to whom he could dictate it. But for the most part, He dictated his letters, and then he signed them at the end to verify their authenticity. And that's what we saw in 2 Corinthians. Colossians 4.18 could be added to this list. We won't take the time to look at that one. 2 Thessalonians 3.17, both of those verses are further proof that Paul did this. On your way back to 1 Peter 5, stop off at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. So after Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians 1 and 2 Thessalonians... 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 17. Notice Paul's clear statement about this practice. It says, verse 17 says, The salutation of Paul with my own hand, and now watch this, which is a sign in every epistle, so I write. This is the sign of authenticity. Paul would sign the letter at the end to signify or to validate its context. So this was Paul's practice. Not only Paul's practice, this was probably Peter's practice, but not limited to them. This was a common practice during the first century, and it appears that the apostles, Peter, Paul, or whoever wrote in the New Testament, simply followed that practice. So with that in mind, let's go back to 1 Peter 5 to conclude our look at that marvelous letter. 1 Peter chapter 5. As we have seen over the last several months, this letter was written to believers who were suffering in various ways. It is a letter that is filled with instruction and encouragement on the Christian life, but especially for those who are suffering. Back in chapter 1, verse 6, Peter said that his readers were being grieved by various trials. That is a reminder to us that trials in life can take many forms. It could be sickness, financial difficulty, loss of some kind, difficult relationships, strained relationships, loss of relationships, disappointment in life, loss of a dream, or many, many other things. Life is full of various trials. 
And Peter has reminded his readers throughout this letter and us as we have read it that trials have a divine purpose. It is consoling to know that God's people are never needlessly afflicted. We are never needlessly afflicted or to say it another way would be to say that God does not waste our pain. God brings good out of our trials. God brings good out of our hardship. He brings good out of our pain. But, but listen, that doesn't mean that trials are easy. It doesn't mean they are trivial. Sometimes they are merely a hassle, like a flat tire when you need to be somewhere quickly. Other times they are extremely painful. The word that Peter uses in chapter 1, verse 6 means to be sad, to be sorrowful, to be distressed, to grieve, and even to weep. Life's hurts aren't just superficial. Sometimes they are very, very deep. And many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. That is why Peter has addressed this subject at length in his letter. As he closes, he wants to give some final words of encouragement. Notice how he does this. Verse 10, he says, But may the God of all grace, who called you or called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. The first thing we need to understand about this verse is that the King James Version and the New King James Version express this idea as a prayer wish, but all of our other English translations state this as a fact. There's really no contradiction here because the fact that this is something God will do means that it is something that can be expressed as an appropriate prayer for God's people. I mention this so you won't be confused if your translation reads differently than mine or your neighbor's. The point is the same either way. Peter is describing God's work in the lives of his people after they have passed through their difficult trials in life. I want you to notice how Peter describes God here in this verse. He refers to him as the God of all grace. That is a reminder that God is not cruel for allowing his children to go through trials, and in fact, he provides grace for us. He is a good and gracious God who supplies the grace we need to walk through trials and walk through heartache and walk through difficulty and walk through pain in life. That's what he does in the present. He grants us grace. But what he has done in the past and what he will do in the future is even more astonishing. This verse says he has called us, that's what he has done in the past, to his eternal glory, that's the future, by Christ Jesus. And beloved, that little phrase is a staggering statement. I hope you haven't heard this kind of thing so often that it's not staggering to you. When Peter mentions that God has called us to his eternal glory, he is not merely referring to a gracious invitation from God, the, the whosoever wills of Scripture. The, 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 the idea that Peter has in mind is not merely a gracious invitation. It is that, yes, but it's more than that. Peter is using the word the way Paul often did, and that is to refer to an effectual saving call. Not just an invitation, but a call that accomplishes its purpose. 
In other words, God has called us and actually brought us into a relationship with His Son, Jesus. And because of that relationship, we will experience eternal glory. That's why I say that this statement is so staggering. It talks about what God determined to do in eternity past to call us effectually, efficaciously, to accomplish that call in our lives so we will experience eternal glory. Yes, life is hard sometimes here on planet Earth. It can be very hard. But it pales in comparison to what we will experience someday in glory. That's why Romans 8.18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. The glory that we will experience will be because of grace. Grace has brought us into a relationship with the Lord Jesus, and grace promises us a glorious future. In the meantime, grace sustains us, and grace strengthens us. Peter's statement here in verse 10 is a reminder to us that God uses our trials and our suffering and our pain and our adversity in a beneficial way in our lives. He opened his letter by saying that basically. He said it periodically throughout, but he says it here at the, again, here at the end because it is so important, so important that God's people be reminded that God uses our pain in beneficial ways. Here Peter says that after our suffering, God will perfect or restore us. The Greek word means to mend, to restore, to set right or make complete. It is saying God matures us through suffering. The next three words here in verse 10 are basically synonyms because they all mean to strengthen, to establish, to confirm, to make strong or make steadfast. Those are the kinds of things God accomplishes in us through trials. Now understand something. Our enemy wants to use our trials to defeat us. He wants to use our trials to beat us down. In fact, our trials sometimes come from our enemy. But when our adversary is attacking us to defeat us or debilitate us or even destroy us, Our Father is working to to perfect us and make us stronger. Trials are never pleasant, and they can be extremely painful, but they are never, ever wasted by our God. He uses them for our good and for His glory, which leads Peter to his next statement in verse 11, where he says, To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. When we are walking through trials, it is very easy for us to become self-centered and self-focused. I have certainly been there in life, and so have you. That is why we need statements like this. In fact, it would be valid to ask the question, why does Peter add verse 11 to what he just said in verse 10? And the answer is, we need this reminder that there are other issues at stake in the midst of our trials. It's not all about us and our preferences and our comfort. God saved us for the privilege of being a trophy of His grace. He saved us to grant us the privilege to bring Him glory 
As verse 11 says, and that should matter to every Christian. That should be important to us. In fact, it should be preeminent to us. So when we are walking through trials, we need to fight the natural tendency to focus on our problems and our hurts and our difficulties. We need to remember that God is not only using our trials for our good, He is using them for His glory. We may not always see in this life how that is the case. But that's why Scripture says we walk by faith, not by sight. We can't always see it. Job couldn't see why he was going through what he was going through. But there were major ramifications in the spiritual realm. Job didn't know what we know when we read the book of Job. But God has graciously recorded the book of Job to remind us that sometimes there are spiritual forces at work in our trials. Sometimes our trials are simply the result of living in a fallen world, right? I mean, because our world is under the curse of sin, we get sick sometimes. We get a cold, we get the flu, we we get sick, or we get hurt. Those things aren't always the work of Satan, but sometimes they may be, and some of the other things that happen to us do come from Satan. No doubt about it. So we need to think beyond ourselves to keep in mind that the events of our lives as verse 11 indicates, should be an opportunity for our lives to glorify God. Sometimes that simply means that we endure by being faithful. Other times it may involve opportunities to talk to others about the Lord as we go through trials. Or maybe it's opportunities to be an encouragement to those who are going through similar heartaches as you are going through. But whatever it means... Whatever it means, verse 11 is a reminder to us that this this aspect, this focus, this perspective of bringing God glory should be important to us. Basic to being a Christian is the realization that I am not my own. I belong to the Lord, and the driving force of our lives should be His glory. We should want our lives to count for Christ. We should want our lives to make an eternal difference. We should want to bring glory to the one who saved us, always, but especially in the midst of our difficulty. And if not, please hear this, if not, if that's not your perspective, then I really feel sorry for you in the midst of your trials because you will have little motivation to walk through them in a positive way. Little to no motivation. If you are not motivated by the Lord's glory, then I, frankly, I don't have any advice for you. I, I have no input, no encouragement for you. I don't know what to say that can help you. But if you are motivated by the Lord's glory, that doesn't necessarily make trials easy, not by any means. But it can make all the difference in the world when it comes to getting through them without becoming bitter. So Peter, here in verse 11 draws our attention to the Lord's glory with this statement. And then he begins to wind down his letter. But don't tune out yet because we have a little ways to go. Verse 12. By Silvanus, our faithful brother as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. Now, this is what I referred to in the introduction when I said that it's possible 
that Peter did not write this letter. Peter was the author of the content. This, was, this letter records Peter's thoughts under the direction of the Holy Spirit, but it's likely that the letter was dictated by Peter to Silvanus, who functioned as Peter's stenographer. You may not recognize the name Silvanus, but you probably do know about this man if you've been a Christian for, for any length of time and have read some of the New Testament. Silvanus is another name for Silas. And he was the man who began traveling with Paul when Paul left for his second missionary journey. Remember, Paul's partner for his first journey was Barnabas, Acts 13. Paul and Barnabas went out together. But Silas was his partner for the second journey. <coughs> Silas was an ideal partner for Paul for several reasons. Number one, he was effective at proclaiming and teaching the Word of God according to Acts 15.32. That was paramount for Paul as a partner. Secondly, he was a Jew, which gave him access to the synagogues. And that was the starting point for Paul in every city in which he entered. To the Jew first, then to the Gentile. He always started with the Jews. Number three, Silvanus, or Silas, was a Roman citizen, according to Acts 16.37. And that gave him certain benefits and certain protection in the Roman world. And fourthly, he was a highly respected leader in the Jerusalem church, according to Acts 15.22. So these attributes made Silas, or Silvanus, an ideal team member for Paul on his second missionary journey. They spent approximately three years on that journey, traveling and ministering together. Now, when you hear the term traveling, don't put it in 21st century context. It's not like, oh, three years to travel. That would really be nice. Traveling wasn't nice in those days. So three years traveling and ministering were tough years. After that missionary journey, Silas continued serving the Lord faithfully in the years to come, which explains why he is mentioned in some of Paul's letters. For example, he was with Paul when Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians. He was with Paul when Paul wrote 2 Thessalonians. He and Paul were partners in the Lord's work. Then, somewhere along the line, he got connected with Peter, as this verse indicates. We don't know from the New Testament how he ended up being with Peter at this time, which was approximately 10 to 15 years after that missionary journey with Paul. So from the second missionary journey, fast forward 10 to 15 years, now Silas has gotten connected with Peter. We don't know how they ended up in the same place, but it's clear they were together when Peter wrote this letter. Not only is it likely that Peter dictated this letter to Silas, it's also a good possibility that Silas delivered the letter to the believers in the regions mentioned back in the opening verses of the letter. As Peter says here in verse 12, Silas was a faithful brother. He was faithful to the Lord, and he was a faithful partner of the Lord's servants, whether that was Paul or Peter. By the way, I think about these kind of things every now and then. Those of us who know Christ will get to meet Silas one day. Just an interesting thought for me to think about some of these people in Scripture. We'll get, to meet, we'll get to meet Silas. He was a precious servant of the Lord. He facilitated this first letter of Peter that is described here in verse 12 as a letter about the true grace of God. That's, a, that's an interesting phrase. Peter says, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. 
So what that tells us is that throughout this letter, Peter has been expounding on the multifaceted grace of God. He explains the grace of God in salvation, the grace of God in submission, and the grace of God in suffering. That's the way this letter unfolds. Chapter 1, verse 1 through 2.12 is about the grace of God in salvation. Chapter 2, verse 13 through 3.12 is about the grace of God in submission. And then chapter 3, verse 13 through chapter 5, verse 11 is about the grace of God in suffering. It's all about the grace of God. In the first section of the letter, which is about the grace of God in salvation, Peter reminds us that we are saved by grace and we are sanctified by grace. We're saved by grace, we grow by grace. In the second section of the letter, which is about the grace of God in submission, Peter reminds us that it is God's will for us to submit to our government, our superiors, our spouses, and even those who are evil. If they are over us, legitimately, we are to submit to them. And then in the third section of the letter, which is about the grace of God in suffering, Peter gives several practical exhortations to those who are suffering. What are these exhortations? Well, this is what we've seen for the last several weeks. Peter says, pray for one another. That's chapter 4, verse 7. He says, love one another. That's chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Minister to one another. That's chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. Glory in God. That's chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. Look to your spiritual leaders. That's chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Humble yourself. That's chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. Cast your care on him. That's chapter 5, verse 7. Resist the enemy. That's chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. Trust God. That's chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. Paul's, I mean, Peter's desire for his readers and for us is that we would lay hold of the multifaceted grace of God and stand firm in it. That is why he wrote this letter exhorting and testifying about the true grace of God, and he wanted to challenge us to stand firm in it. And then he closes this letter with a couple very interesting verses. Notice verse 13. He says, She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you. And so does Mark, my son. Believe it or not, this is one of the most difficult verses in the letter as far as interpretation goes. The difficulty comes in trying to figure out if Peter is using the word Babylon in a plain, literal manner or a figurative, literal manner. The word she at the beginning of the verse is almost certainly a reference to a church. The Greek word for church, which is the word ekklesia, is feminine in Greek. And that is why you would have a feminine personal pronoun. Greek does not work the same way as English. That is, uh, we don't, we just, our words have a natural gender to them. Boy is masculine, girl is feminine, a pulpit is neuter, uh, natural gender. But in Greek, the words have a grammatical gender, and the word for church is feminine. And that's why you have a feminine personal pronoun. So Peter is referring to a group of people in a certain location who were also a part of the family of God by the selecting work of God. To say it another way, he is referring to other believers in a local church. But where was this local church? Without going into all the evidence, because this is a very complicated, detailed issue, the best answer to the question, in my opinion, is that Peter is using the word Babylon 
here in this verse in a figurative way as an alias for Rome, perhaps even a code word for Rome. You see, in times of persecution, writers exercised unusual care not to endanger Christians by identifying them. Peter did not want this letter to be found and the church to be persecuted, so he may have hidden its location under the code word Babylon, which aptly, which aptly fits because of the city's idolatry. Now, we can't be dogmatic on that, but I believe the evidence points to the view that Peter is referring to the church in Rome here in this verse. So he's basically saying that the believers in Rome were sending their greetings to the recipients of this letter. And then, at the end of verse 13, he mentions Mark. This is fascinating. The Mark mentioned in this verse is also called in Scripture John Mark. Who is this? He was the man Paul and Barnabas took with them on their first missionary journey. However, if you know the story in Acts 13, you know that when the team came to the dangerous part of the trip where there were mountains and robbers, Mark bailed out. He left and went back home. So without being harsh, just to say it plainly, Mark was a failure. Mark was a quitter. He bailed out. So when Paul and Barnabas were getting ready for their second missionary journey, Barnabas wanted to take John Mark along again. Let's give him another chance. Paul refused. Paul objected. In fact, the difference of opinion between Paul and Barnabas over this issue of John Mark resulted in Barnabas taking John Mark with him on a missionary trip while Paul took Silas with him. But something happened in the years that followed. When Paul closed his letter to the Colossians, he made some positive comments about John Mark. That lets us know that Paul's stance against taking John Mark wasn't personal. It's not that he didn't like him. He just felt like that's, that's not the place or the kind of thing that you, you uh, play with or toy with or you just experiment with. Well, he failed the first time. Let's give him another chance. Paul said, no, no, that's the missionary journey is not the kind of thing that you just take chances with. It wasn't anything personal. So when Paul closed his, letters to the, his letter to the Colossians, he made some positive comments about John Mark. In fact, in Philemon 24, Paul names Mark as one of his fellow workers. This is years after the event where Mark had bailed out. It was about 11 or 12 years after that first incident. Paul calls Mark one of his fellow workers. So what happened in this intervening time? What happened? Well, this verse gives us a clue when Peter refers to Mark as my son. Somehow, Peter got linked up with Mark. Now, Peter was used to failure, and he knew how to handle it. He knew how to repent of it. He knew how to turn it around, how to make things right. So Peter, evidently, took on a restoration project in Mark. That says something about being able to use your past to help others, doesn't it? And you want to hear something exciting? Mark, this guy, Mark had a wonderful privilege that belonged only to four men in the entire history of humanity. He wrote one of the Gospels, the Gospel according to Mark. 
Same guy. Beloved, there is a future for failures. There's a future for failures. Peter is an illustration of that truth. Few, few of God's people failed as drastically as Peter did on the night when our Lord was going through his various trials. Peter is an <coughs> illustration of the fact that there's a future for failures, and so is John Mark. What a powerful way to end this letter about the grace of God, isn't it? I mean, God's grace not only saves us out of sin, saves us when we're lost, but God's grace even not only redeems us in that way, it redeems us from our failures as believers. Redeems us, pulls us back up. And then verse 14 closes. Closes the letter, verse 14. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Peter tells the believers to greet one another with a kiss of love. This is similar to Paul's statement at the end of some of his letters where he says to greet one another with a holy kiss. In the first century church, this was something men did with men and women did with women on each other's cheeks. So there were no romantic overtones associated with this, no sexual overtones associated with this. In fact, this is still a practice in many Christian settings around the world. A lot of Christian settings around the world. The first time I was overseas, this took a little getting used to for me. I'm not used to men and elderly women coming up to me after I preach and kissing me all over the cheek. But that's not uncommon in various Christian settings around the world. It happens a lot. It was and still is simply a very meaningful way to show genuine Christian love and affection. Now, this wasn't the only way Christians communicated love and acceptance during the first century. It wasn't the only way, not, not at all. Galatians 2.9 refers to Peter, James, and John extending to Paul and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. So the point is this. We don't have to adopt this specific cultural expression to show love to one another. The first century believers used a variety of means to demonstrate genuine Christian love and affection, and so should we. Because this is, this is right at the heart of what is involved in, in love in the body of Christ. As 1 John 3.18 says, My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue only, but in deed and in truth. In other words, we need to show our love for one another in practical, tangible, everyday ways. A hearty handshake. The right hand of fellowship, a pat on the back, a hug, a holy kiss, whatever the form, the, the, the cultural form is not the issue. It's the fact of making sure to communicate one, to one another our love. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are in the same family. We're in the family of God. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are in His body. In fact, as you well know, sometimes our relationships with other believers are even closer than the relationships we have with blood relatives, especially if those relatives don't know the Lord. There's a unique bond we share with one another in Christ. There's a, a special bond that we share with one another in Christ. And then Peter closes his letter by saying this, Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Now understand, this was no mere formality. Peter could have closed his letter any number of ways. So this is not to be seen as a mere formality. These believers to whom Peter wrote were suffering. 
They were suffering various trials, Peter said. Some were going through really deep waters, really hard times, really painful circumstances in life. So Peter offers this prayer wish of peace for these whom he loved so deeply. Peter loved these people. His heart ached for them. He knew what they were going through. He had heard the news. He, he knew the stories. So he offers this prayer wish of peace for those whom he loves so deeply. Now remember, Peter was Jewish. And it was, for Jews, and still is, very common for Jewish people to express this to one another when they part. You know the Hebrew word. I'm sure you've heard it. It's the Hebrew word shalom. Now, that's not the word here because this was written in Greek. But Peter, writing in Greek, said peace because that was the way Jewish people or the Hebrews would often part company. The word shalom means peace, but it means more than peace. It is a term that expresses a desire to see the other person experience blessing in all of life. Wholeness. Fullness. That's what Peter wanted for his readers. So he wishes them God's peace, God's shalom at the end of his letter. He wanted them to experience God's peace in the midst of their turmoil, and he wanted them to experience God's blessing in all of life. That's the heart of an authentic spiritual shepherd, which is exactly what the Apostle Peter really was. He was a shepherd who cared for the sheep. So we come to the end of our trek through 1 Peter. We made it through. The question is, did it get through to us? We got through it. Did it get through to us? Let me ask you this question. And take just a a moment to reflect on it. Really think about this. In, In all honesty, has your life in any way been changed by your exposure to this powerful letter of the New Testament? Sincerely now, honestly, think back over the last several months. Can you think of anything in your life that's different? Anything that has been changed by this powerful letter of the New Testament? If not, then it's merely been an academic exercise for us. And that would be a tragedy. Because the, the goal when we go through Scripture is not just to get through it. The goal is for it to get through to us. So may God be pleased to use this powerful book of Holy Scripture to make genuine, lasting changes in our lives. Let's bow together as we close. And as we close this morning, take just a moment to think about that question. Think about what you have seen in 1 Peter over the last several months, what you have learned, what you've heard, what you've read. And think about your life. Think have, have asked yourself the question, have I made any changes in my life? Has there been growth, progress, development because of my exposure to God's Word in this particular letter? Hopefully we can say yes, sincerely, honestly. Answer yes. The Lord has used this book in, in this way in my life, or He's used it in, in this manner, and He's He's done this in my heart, or caused me to make these changes, or he's made these changes in me through his truth. Let's not be content to close our Bibles and think, wow, we we made it through 1 Peter, but instead say, Lord, 
May First Peter make it through me. Father, as we close our time together this morning, and not only our service, but close our look at this wonderful letter, we thank you for the consistent exposure to the true grace of God, as Peter calls it, that is set forth in this letter. May it encourage us. May it strengthen us. May it challenge us. May it equip us. And Father, for anyone who is here gathered with us who, who's never received your saving grace, may your Holy Spirit draw that person, that man or woman, young person, whoever it is, to come to believe in Jesus Christ wholeheartedly, genuinely, to surrender to him, to come into a relationship with him by which they can call you Father and it be accurate. So may your Spirit stir here in among us and in us individually to accomplish your good purposes in our lives. We pray these things together in Jesus' name. Amen.